The humorous story is told about a baseball manager who decided to play a rookie in right field one day. The regular fielder, of course, he wasn't very happy about this, that he was being replaced by a, a rookie, and he loudly makes it known from the bench that it was a big mistake to play the kid. As it turned out, the rookie was so nervous that he messed up big time. He made a couple of errors. He misjudged several fly balls out to right field that should have been called errors. Each time he messed up, the veteran complained loudly from the bench. Finally, late in the game, the manager replaced the rookie with the veteran player, mostly to shut the veteran up. Not long after, the veteran mishandled the first ball that was hit to him, and they chalked it up as an error. As he came off the field at the end of the inning, everyone on the bench got very quiet. They, could, they wanted to hear what was going to be said between him and the manager. And the manager was waiting for the veteran, but before the manager could address the man, the veteran ball player slammed his glove down in disgust and said, Skipper, that kid has right field so messed up, nobody can play it. <laughs> we could but say much the same thing about the religious landscape in America today. We wonder if the field's so messed up that nobody can play it. It's a very confused landscape, and one thing the veteran player was right about, the field seems rigged for failure. Everyone is operating under a different set of rules, under a different set of principles. You see, every false religion, every Christian cult, as we call them, seeks to establish their own righteousness. And they go about it with different rules. But they all have one thing in common, is that they try to reach God, they try to please God, or try to be saved or become righteous by their own good deeds and works. Self-righteousness. It's all about keeping certain rituals, doing the right things, trying to be a better person. And in Romans chapter 10, we see what is true of every false religion was also true for Israel. And it broke the heart of the Apostle Paul. Look for a moment back in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, how Paul introduces this, this subject of, of Israel and how it affects him. And he says in the first verse of Romans chapter 9, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. The word translated sorrow there expresses pain, literal pain. It could be pain of body. It could be pain of mind. It could be pain, emotional pain. It's a pain sorrow. And then Paul says, and I have unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Because his brethren, the Israelites, were separated from Christ. They were accursed. Why? Because they were living by the wrong rules and trying to play the field, as it were, according to their rules. And then once again, in Romans chapter 10 that we read, Paul once again expresses his heart. Verse 1 of chapter 10, speaking to fellow believers that he calls brethren here, Paul's talking about Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For his fellow Jews, their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Paul had a compelling, heart-longing depth, broken heart, as it were, to bring his fellow kinsmen, the Jews, to Jesus Christ. And so we see here that his letter to the Romans is just, it's not cold-hearted. 
Yes, there are theological discussions on election and justification and sanctification, but it's not a cold-hearted dissertation on these topics. But it's a proclamation of the truth of God's word that comes from a broken heart that wants to see his kinsmen saved. But before we get into the religious landscape of the self-righteousness of Paul's kinsmen, the Jews, I want to mention some things that could and, and probably should break our own hearts. I want us to see something of the religious landscape in America. What, what does it look like out there? As we go out and we witness and we live in this world, what's, what does right field look like? <laughs> we want to put it that way. I came across a statistic. I used to not be able to say that at all, so I'm making progress. Just yesterday that said, by the year 2040, 2040, 21 years from now, Muslims will replace Jews as the second largest religion in America. For the first time in the 400-year history of our nation, Christianity is on the decline. Christianity is on the decline for the first time in 400 years. The fastest growing religious segment in America is none of the above. We call them the nuns, because when people respond to the surveys and they have all these options of their religious affiliation, they say none of the above. And so they are called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And while there are 4,000 new church plants every year in the United States, over 7,000 churches close their doors. The so-called church growth movement of the past few decades turned out to be nothing more than nomads changing churches. There was no real overall church growth. In fact, there was, there was decline. There was no revival. And then what was touted as a worship revival when it began quickly turned into the worship wars that have divided and closed churches. But I could say more about this, but these are all just symptoms, symptoms of something more. Nevertheless, it breaks the heart. At least it should because it grieves the heart of God. The symptoms, however, are just the result of what people believe or do not believe. People act on their beliefs. What, is real, what they really believe in their heart and in their mind, that's what they act on. In 2018, Lifeway Research, in conjunction with Ligonier Ministries, and if you're not familiar with Ligonier Ministries, you should be. That was R.C. Sproul's ministry, and it's still active and puts out good stuff today. But they, they conducted a survey that they do every two years, in two, just last year in 2018. And the survey is called the State of American Theology. You go, okay, what's that about? They wanted to determine what Christians in America believe, what they believe about God, what they believe about salvation and sin, about the church, about the Bible. While some of the results are highly encouraging, some of the results are shocking. And they point directly to what seems to account for what we could call the overall ineffectiveness of the church in America today. And I want to point out just a few of the surveys uh, questions that are disconcerting and troubling. And these few relate to what we call evangelical Christians, what we say that we believe. If you're wondering what an evangelical is, that is us. Grace Baptist Church is an evangelical church, both historically and, and theologically. So what is evangelical? Well, Lifeway Research defines it for us, and it's a good definition. Evangelical is that means that evangelicals agree with four particular statements, that they agree with these. First of all, an evangelical agrees with this statement. 
The Bible is the highest authority for what we believe. Amen? Secondly, it's very important to me, for me, to personally encourage non-believers to trust Christ as their Savior. Amen. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty for my sin. Amen. Only those who trust in Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal life. Amen. But when we start to look at what other things evangelicals believe, we begin to see a very confused religious landscape, even among those with evangelical beliefs. Even though nine out of ten evangelicals believe the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches, nine out of ten, most evangelicals are biblically ignorant in their beliefs in a couple of key areas. And the one that's most shocking to me is when the evangelical respondents are asked if they agree or disagree with the following statement. Do you agree or disagree with this? And the statement is this. Jesus is the first and greatest being created, I'll pause, created by God. And everybody's shaking their head no. I have studied church history. If you have studied church history, you'll recognize that statement as the heretical teaching of Arius in the 4th century. Today it's recognized as the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses, who teach that Jesus is a created being through whom God created the rest of creation. So what do evangelicals believe as they respond to this? 78%, almost 8 out of 10, agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That's up from 7 out of 10 in 2016, so that belief is increasing. I've read and reread the study <laughs> and their interpretation of the study over and over, thinking, I must have missed something here. Did I misread the statement? But no, it's confirmed in both surveys in 2016 and 2018. And Ligonier Ministries wrote this about it. <clears throat> Strangely, why most evangelicals strongly believe in justification by faith alone, they are confused about the person of Jesus Christ. On one hand, virtually all evangelicals express support of the Trinitarian doctrine. What's Trinitarian doctrine? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, co-equal, co-eternal, all that, that good stuff. They go on, on the one hand, or, or yet at the same time, most agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, which was a view espoused by the ancient heretic Arius. And it goes on, Arius was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and again at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Yet the number of American evangelicals who agree with this view has increased from 2016 when 71% agreed and 23% disagreed to today when 78% agree and 18% disagree. The results show the pressing need for Christians to be taught Christology, which is the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially as the outcome has gotten worse since 2016, says Ligonier. There is a great lack of teaching today on the person of Christ, a doctrine for which the early church fought so hard. Most American evangelicals are confused on one of the key core doctrines of the Christian faith. Jesus would say, who do men say that I am? Am I a created creature? What is the nature and character 
of Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising that once people are confused about who Jesus is, that they'd be confused about other key doctrines of the faith, especially concerning worship and salvation. Five out of ten of all evangelicals in America believe, five out of ten, one half, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And one more, and this one was in the 2016 study, not included in the 2018. I thought it was interesting they left that one out. But it has relevance to our study in Romans chapter 10. Evangelicals were asked whether they agree or disagree with the following statement. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. The good news is only one-third, that's still a lot, of evangelicals agreed with the statement that their good deeds had something to do with getting to heaven. The bad side of it was that two-thirds of all Christians in our nation believe that their good works at least partly contribute to their salvation. And then when you factor in all the various Christian denominations and what they teach and believe, and then all the cults, the state of the confusing religious landscape in America breaks the heart. And I pray that we'd have the same kind of sorrow and grief as the Apostle Paul, and that our heart's desire out in this confused landscape would be that people would be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verses 2 through 4 of Romans chapter 10, Paul is going to show us that it doesn't matter how zealous a person is. It doesn't matter how committed a person is if it's not in accordance with knowledge. If they are ignorant about God's righteousness, if they are ignorant concerning the truth, especially the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done, they're playing by the wrong rules out in this confused field. First of all, in verse 2 of Romans chapter 10, we see the, the difference between true zeal and false zeal. Speaking of Israel, Paul writes in verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. The Apostle Paul knew from his, his own experience that a person could be very religious, very zealous, very enthusiastic, but that person can be very far from God. And we find that in Paul's testimony in Galatians chapter 1, the 13th verse. Paul's letter to the Galatians, first, verse, or first chapter, the 13th verse. And there in verse 13 in Galatians 1, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, what? Being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And then Paul gave a similar testimony to the Philippians over in Philippians chapter 3 the fifth and sixth verse. Third chapter of Philippians, verse 5. Paul says that as a Jew, verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. As far as legalistic fulfilling all the terms, all the demands of the law, Paul says he was blameless. 
Yet along with other Jews of his day, he had no understanding of spiritual truth and what genuine godliness and righteousness was. He not only did not know and follow God's way, but he vehemently opposed it. He persecuted the church of God. People can be zealous and sincere in their beliefs, but they can be sincerely wrong. It's not how excited you are about what you believe or how zealous you are in promoting it or how sincere you are, but it's whether it's in accordance with knowledge, accordance with the truth. So Paul says back in verse 3 of Romans chapter 10, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There are all kinds of people who are zealous, they're committed to what they believe, but they don't know about God's righteousness. They knock on your door, they hand out literature to you, might be a zealous word of faith preacher on TV, but Proverbs chapter 19 verse 2 says, also it is not good for a person to be without knowledge. It is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. Without the knowledge of God's righteousness, their footsteps err. The Hebrew word means they miss their way. They miss their way. They're on the wrong track. They're headed in the wrong direction without knowledge. And sadly, they take a lot of people with them. Jesus said to the self-righteous Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Paul says that they seek to establish their own righteousness. That's what the self-righteous Jews did. Since they were willingly and inexcusably ignorant, God had already, Paul had already shown that they're without excuse, so they're doing this willingly. They sought to establish their own righteousness. They pursued a principle of righteousness that was based on keeping laws and regulations. The way to be righteous is to do all these right things and, do, and not do all these wrong things. They pursued righteousness as if it were by works. And as we saw last week, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. When Jesus Christ was in their path, they stumbled over it. They missed their way because they were ignorant of who Jesus really is and what he had come to do. It's really what every false religion and every cult does. They're ignorant about God's righteousness that is attained by faith. They're ignorant about truth. They're ignorant about who Jesus is. So they make up their own rules. In many cases, they write their own scripture. And in every case, in every false religion, in every religious system, it's works-based. That says if you do certain things, if you do certain rituals, you will be right with whatever God or gods in which you believe. And every false religion of, is a system of beliefs or it's a code or it's a moral conduct that judges or qualifies or disqualifies a person based on their adherence and observance to certain codes, certain rules, laws, traditions, or the performance of certain acts. And I want to add this kind of religion almost universally is enforced by those in power. There's always a hierarchy in power that attempts to maintain, increase, or abuse their power over others. And this kind of religion is the creation of man. It's not the intention or the design of God. It seeks to establish its own kind of righteousness. And then those in power attempt to retain and abuse their power over others. 
So I want to show you how these works-based systems work in the so-called Christian cults, at least cults they claim to be Christian, but, but they're not. And, and it kind of hits on what deeply concerns me about what evangelicals say they believe about Jesus Christ. Because every cult is in grievous error concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you want the fancy word for that? It's Christology. It's the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His person, who he is, his work, what he has done. And the cults have a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. They are ignorant concerning Jesus Christ, who he is, his person, what he has done, his works. Every false concept of Jesus, his person, is because they have an inadequate and false understanding of the nature and the character of Jesus. Those who believe that Jesus is a created being, like the Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that Michael is the same as Jesus in the New Testament. Michael in the Old Testament, he's a created being through, God, through whom God created every, everything else. So they do not believe that Jesus is God of very God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In effect, they believe in a Jesus then who is inferior to the Jesus of Scriptures. Their Jesus can't die for all their sins. Their Jesus can't die for and bring total and complete salvation. In other words, in a practical sense, their inferior Jesus cannot do it all for you. An inferior Jesus is incapable of bringing about a full and complete free salvation. His sacrifice is insufficient. You have to make up for it then with your own good works, your own deeds, your own righteousness by keeping certain ordinances. According to the cults, and I found this is true of every one of them, whatever they say about Jesus, Jesus, their Jesus can only open the door to salvation. Now you must go through this door and obtain it by your own good works. Every cult does one of two things. Like the whole, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they drag Jesus down from his co-eternity and co-equalness, if that's a word, and they Try to bring Jesus down to man's level. He's not fully God. He can't do it all. And then we have Mormonism in our community that tries to lift man up to God's level. They, they actually tell, they actually believe this, that a man who is in good standing in the Mormon church and keeps the commandments will become a God and he will have his own world in which to be God over. And so Mormonism raises man up to the level of God, or tries to attempt, but what that does too, that drags God down. That drags Jesus down. So you must make up in their systems for an inferior Jesus that cannot do it all for you. And in every case, salvation boils down to this. You have to keep the commandments, whatever they say they are. You also have to belong to their own organization, because there's no salvation outside of their organization. And you have to do things their way. But that brings us to the good news in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law to righteousness. It's been said that the difference between Christianity and every other faith in the world is that all other religions are about man trying to reach up to God, trying to obtain his favor, trying to please him. Christianity is what? It's 
God reaching down to man. Jesus, the Son of God, God of very God, born and placed in a manger, became a man, fully human, fully God, that he might die on the cross for our sins. So primarily, religion is about what man has to do to be right with God. Christianity, however, is about what God has already done to provide us the opportunity to be right with him. Religion says you must earn your salvation by doing good deeds or certain acts and, and not doing evil. Christianity says all we need to do is believe that Christ has already paid the price for the evil we have done. Christianity says we're all evil. We're all filled with sin. And there's nothing we can do to earn the right to be saved. Christianity says that God in the form of Jesus Christ stepped into our place and paid the awful price that had to be paid for us. He gave us the free gift of salvation if we choose to believe in him. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And that wonderful verse in John chapter 1, verse 12 for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So Paul says in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jews in the New Testament times sought to fulfill the law by their own efforts so they could obtain their own righteousness and be acceptable to God. But Paul declares here that Christ is the end. And he's the only end. He is the only fulfillment of perfect, divinely acceptable righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the entire law of Moses by his perfect sinless life. He fulfilled the law by his perfect sacrifice for sin. So in what sense is Christ the end of the law for us? It is to those who what? Believe. It is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord brings to an end. What does it bring to an end? The sinner's futile quest for righteousness through his own imperfect attempts to fulfill the law. The quest is over. If you believe in Jesus Christ, get off that bus, okay? When you receive Jesus Christ, you also receive the gift of his righteousness. Those who try to please God and thereby attain salvation through legalism, by religious ritual, or even by their behavior that is commanded, pursue an absolute vain quest. Because the best righteousness a man can hope to achieve on his own is worthless. Isaiah said it's no more than a filthy garment in God's eyes. The truth is this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who made him... He, let me start that over. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to close with something that's not in your outline this morning. So you'll have to take your own notes. <laughs> Next Sunday in Romans chapter 10, we'll be studying the way to salvation and how the righteousness of God is secured but based on what we have seen from God's word this morning and looking over the religious landscape of our land, I want to briefly give you some basic principles, some basic principles on how to share your faith, especially how to share your faith with someone who is caught up in a works-based or performance-based system of salvation. 
or even caught up in self-righteousness, where they're dependent upon their good works and the keeping of certain rituals to be right with God. I've already said in the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who are already religious. They think they have it all mapped out. They think they have it all figured out. But they do not know about God's righteousness, and they've established a righteousness of their own, which will not say, but they're, they're trusting in that. So I just want to give you some bullet points this morning on how to share your, your faith with these folks. A lot of it's going to be unpacked next Sunday and the Sundays after, but, but I think giving it to you in just these bullet points will be immediately helpful to you. Bullet point one. In all your witnessing and sharing of your faith, number one, Rely totally on the Holy Spirit. Rely totally on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts concerning sin and righteousness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that saves, regenerates, and, and, and sanctifies. If God's not in it, he's not in it. Rely on the Holy Spirit in prayer. Pray for yourself and pray for those that you're talking to or, or will be talking to. And if you find yourself that you're already talking to somebody... Pray silently in your heart and pray to God. And one of the best things to do is when you're talking to somebody, say, you know, every time I talk about religious things or things in the Bible, I like to begin with prayer. Can I pray with you? Nobody ever is going to say, no, no, we're not going to pray here. And so just, just open it up in prayer and pray whatever the Holy Spirit lays on your heart for that person in, in, that, in that situation. You know, I've, I've had people tell me, you're the first person that ever prayed for me by name. By name. That's very powerful in the Holy Spirit. So rely on the Holy Spirit and pray. Trust in God. Bullet point number two, and this is especially helpful in witnessing to those in false religions or in the cults. Be mindful of this. People in a works-based or performance-based system People in a works-based or performance-based system lack an assurance of salvation. People in a works-based or performance-based system lack an assurance of salvation. They don't have any assurance that if they died today, they would be acceptable to God. And that they will go to heaven or whatever their concept of the afterlife is because eternity is completely dependent on what they do in this life and how far they progress. It's all up to them. Don't be afraid at some point in the conversation to ask the Billy Graham question. If you died today, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And if they're honest with what they believe and honest in their hearts, they'll say, oh, no, no, but I, I'm making progress or I'm going to do this or I'm going to try better with this. You see... I believe the Holy Spirit is going to use that insecurity. The Holy Spirit will use the insecurity in their hearts, and that will open the door to share your faith and security in Christ. Because you know. You know. And number three, we're back to Christology again. Stick to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Stick with Jesus. Christology. Don't get sidetracked. Once in a while you will, because that's what they try to do. They try to divert you to something else. You know, don't get sidetracked in peripheral and spurious doctrines. Stick to the person of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what he has done. And what he has done includes what he has done for you personally, doesn't it? What he has done in saving you and changing you. 
how He continues to make you more and more into the conformity of the likeness of Christ. Stick to the facts, man, as they used to say in Dragnet, who Jesus is and what he has done. Don't get off message. If you get sidetracked, say, well, let's talk about that later. Or if they ask a question and you don't know the answer, say, I'll check into that and I'll get back to you. You know, there's ways to keep bringing it down. Don't get sidetracked in things like discussing subjects like blood transfusion with Jehovah's Witnesses or baptism for the dead with, with the Mormons, or the character of the founder of their religion. Yeah, you can say a lot of bad stuff about Joseph Smith, and I'll be historically true, but you're not going to win a convert by tearing down the guy at the top. There's a lot more we can say about this, and we'll see much more of it next week, but I want to add a couple more points. Number four, memorize the gospel message. Memorize the gospel message. So you take it into your heart, and you know what it is. In order to share the gospel, you need to know exactly what it is. You need to be able to stay on point. And as the Apostle Paul would have it, it's laid out succinctly and briefly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And this has been called the gospel in a nutshell. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of the 15th chapter of Corinthians. Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. I make known to you the gospel which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you really got a hold of it when I preached it to you, this is what you believe. Verse 3, and here is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. One more piece of advice. It's according to the scriptures. Know what those scriptures are. Know what those scriptures are. Be prepared to open the word of God, which will not return void, with whoever you're talking to. And read the passages together to tell them who Jesus is and what he has done for them and will do in salvation. And remember that it's only the Holy Spirit who can do that. So don't get discouraged if you think, well, I tried it and it didn't go anywhere. You planted a seed. You planted a seed. And it might be somebody else who reaps the harvest of that seed, but that's the way God works. I would guarantee that when you came to Jesus Christ, there was one more than one person praying for you and working in your life, and they all worked together in our salvation. Shall we pray? Father, I, as I think of people that, uh, that I know and have known before, Lord, that are, that are caught up in their own self-righteousness or one way or another, they don't see a need for what we've talked about today, Lord. I pray now that as you'll be bringing to mind, each one of our minds, somebody that we know,
somebody that we might love, somebody that might live near us and we have contact with, Lord, that you'll begin to open the door. As we talked about in Sunday school class this morning, by meeting people's needs and ministering to them, we earn credibility when we have the opportunity to to proclaim Jesus, Lord. And so I just pray that you'll give us those opportunities to, to meet people's needs, to love them for Christ. And Father, may we be able to give them the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.